Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Tom Freston, the co-founder of MTV, once said, innovation is taking two things that exist and putting them together in a new way. In a way, that's what sponsorship is. Two things, a brand and a rights holder, coming together in a new way and working together. The thing is, the sponsorship industry can be guilty sometimes, hell, let's be honest, a lot of the time of just rolling out the same old properties activated in the same old ways. And in the end, it isn't innovative at all. We all cringe at the thought of logo slapping and chairman's choice sponsorships, yet it still happens. Innovation is what can give a sponsorship a competitive advantage, whether that is better awareness and positioning for brands versus their competitors, whether it's access to target audiences, whether it's just better return on investment and return on objective, or whether it is just a stronger overall relationship. In the end, innovative sponsorships become a very attractive currency. Of course, Creativity is synonymous with innovation, and while many people working in sponsorship are damn good at their jobs, they don't often describe themselves as creative. So, if we know innovation drives better outcomes, and we need to be creative to be innovative, how do we help ensure that happens on a consistent basis in our sponsorships? It's a question for all three sides, rights holders, brands, and agencies. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 115 brought to you by Core Software. I'm really excited for this episode, and I hope you are as well. I hope all is well in your part of the sponsorship world, and thanks for joining us again. Now, normally this is where I would give some shout-outs, but strangely, there are none this time around. And I say strangely because I had a couple of people connect on LinkedIn, and that's usually followed by a message saying hi and letting me know a little bit about who they are and what they're up to and where they work, but there were no messages following up with the connection. So please, If you've never had a shout out, connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll make it happen in the next episode. I really do enjoy hearing from you guys. As I said before, if we know innovation drives better outcomes and we need to be creative to be innovative, how do we help ensure that happens on a consistent basis in our sponsorships? And of course, it's a question for all areas of sponsorship, all three sides, rights holders, brands and agencies. To help answer that question, one of Australia's recognised innovators, Adam Ferrier, joins us. After graduating university with degrees in commerce and clinical psychology, Adam began his career working in maximum security prisons before what he calls making the natural move to advertising. And if we fast forward about 25 years or so with a list of awards as long as my arm, we find Adam is one of Australia's leading consumer psychologists, a brand strategist, and an authority on behavioural economics. Adam is the founder of Thinkabell, an agency that creates measured magic, and which in 2021 was ranked number one creative agency in the world by industry publication Best Ads. And it's the first time that it's been awarded to an Australian agency. Also, leading Australian publication Mumbrella lists Thinkabell as the 2021 A, full service, B, creative, and C, PR agency of the year. It's the only time an agency has ever won all three titles in one year. Adam's also an author, board game developer, and a podcaster, all of which we'll discuss later and, of course, provide links to in the show notes at coresoftware.com. Now, just a little note before we go too much further, and that is that in this episode, there is a little bit of swearing, but 
It's in context and it's used appropriately to make a point, but I'm just warning you now because we don't normally have swearing in the show. Here's Adam. Adam, welcome to the show. We always start off with just a couple of icebreaker questions, just to have a little bit of fun, ease into it, and a bit of a way for people to get to know you just a little bit. And so your first icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? I've always been a little bit, unfortunately, obsessed with money. So I always had loads and loads of uh, jobs as a kid. But the very first one I had was when I was about 12, which was collecting golf balls on the local driving range uh, for $2 if I cleaned the entire uh, practice driving range. A good job. I did that for a little bit when I worked at a golf course in England doing sort of odd jobs. And I loved getting in that cart and driving it around and collecting golf balls. It was good fun. Yeah, there was no cart where I was, and uh, and you also had the the players. They'd never stopped hitting the bloody golf balls either, so you never quite knew when one was going to land quite close by. I never got hit though. Very good. Now I notice on your LinkedIn profile that you've listed a ton of awards that you've won over the years. So your second icebreaker question is: What is the first ever? award that you can remember winning maybe like when you're a kid at school something like that like way 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 back first thing to say on that question is that in advertising we've won a load of awards because there are loads of awards to win right so there's sound them out like confetti so everyone gets a prize um but when, when i was a kid i was a pretty good chess player and um so i i, I won three trophies in chess, but the one I'm most proud of was being state under 12 chess champion in WA. And I've still got that trophy somewhere rather. Excellent. Now, Adam, I invited you on the show for this chat because I sometimes look for discussions to be had that can be on the periphery of sponsorship. And while creativity and innovation in sponsorship is probably woven into all activations or at least strived for it isn't something that is often specifically talked about as something that needs to happen as part of the process it's just what sort of ideas can we come up with it's more results and return on investment focus so I wanted to lead off and and set the scene a little bit by asking what makes something an innovative idea rather than just hey I've had this idea in marketing I think a lot of us get obsessed with problem solving and problem solving generates a certain type of idea and and a way you go and it helps build a brand in whatever way. I get really off on creating ideas that have no problem to be solved, but create extra value for the business or for the entity uh, that I'm working with. Uh, So in the, in the UK or in Canada, sorry, there was a very famous example with um, a thing called diamond shaped shreddies which is just square shreddies tilted on their side and they launched diamond-shaped shreddies, right? And they got a whole lot of PR and kind of, and all they did was just, you know, had a bit of a piss take and turned the shreddy on its side. I did something with a brand here called the Art Series Hotels that um, every summer they had low occupancy, but they wanted to drive people to the, um, to start the hotel. So they did a thing called the Overstay Checkout. And the overstay checkout meant that you didn't have to give back your room unless somebody else was going to stay there that night. So you could keep on staying there for free until somebody had booked your actual room and then you had to get out. So all the hotel was doing was giving away dead air because nobody was going to be in that room anyway. But the people who stayed there were, you know, ate at the bars and the restaurants within the hotel and so forth. So it was actually a really good... And then it got loads of PR by doing this kind of novel kind of stuff. 
And then they ended up doing that every year for about seven years. It's how they kind of maintained occupancy and kind of generated sales uh, during that dead period. But, you, you know, but they kind of gamified the whole thing. But the actual prize was just dead air that wasn't sold anyway. So I love ideas like that that create extra value with, with whatever you've got. So why is creativity and innovation in sponsorship important? And I think the question's around the difference between trying to push the boundaries and look to add that extra value rather than just, here's an idea for execution, let's just get on and, and, and get it done. Why is creativity and innovation important? In the world of sponsorship, I think, it's, I think advertising and marketing is a slow cumulative game. So you spend 5% of your revenue every year and you do it in ads and it's you know it's all about incrementality with something like sponsorship you can change the fortunes of a brand very very quickly with a clever use of sponsorship so for example uh, if you're a very small business and you, you put all of your marketing budget into sponsoring say the local uh footy stadium you'll suddenly seem very very big because your name is 12 foot high at the top of footy stadium and that makes you suddenly seem huge Conversely, if you're a massive brand and you want to have really, you want to build a really strong affinity to a local community, you sponsor the local arts hall and suddenly you're part of a local community having a conversation. So it can, I love, I love its power through paired association with whatever you're sponsoring to really quickly change, change perceptions of that particular brand in any strategic way that you need to. We often hear the phrase in business, and you spoke about it then when you were talking about incrementality. So we often hear that phrase in business that if you aren't moving forward, you're moving backwards, i.e. you're kind of dead in the water while everybody else progresses. It implies that changing and, and being creative and innovating are things that will help us be successful. How true is that? Is, is there a danger if you're not being innovative and being creative? A good mate of mine says change is overrated, and, and I, I kind of agree with him. I kind of, I kind of like it. I think brands ultimately, and businesses are built on consistency and delivering and delivering and delivering and delivering and delivering. There's coming back to sponsorship. Sponsorship can be part of that game for once and just get a bit of reach by sponsoring some, holding on to that for years and years and years, and that's pretty easy. It's kind of how we know sponsorship to work. But I do love the idea of a brand attaching itself to to another entity that can fast track that that sense or the gradual movement in business by really kind of getting people to reappraise stuff so it's got a really powerful role to play in um in doing things differently and mixing things up whilst the engine of a business should be uh should be pretty consistent what's your advice because i know you deal with this sort of stuff every day so what's your advice on how people who want to be innovative, who have great ideas, who are creative, what's your advice on how they can navigate an organisation where the prevailing attitude is kind of, well, we've always done it like X, let's just keep doing it like that. Thanks to the ideas, but we're kind of set in our ways. How do people navigate a situation like that? Probably the first thing I'll say is get out, you know, like get out of that organisation. Like you have no, you have no business being there unless you're entering that organisation as the CEO or as in a, a position of influence where you feel comfortable being able to influence the area that's under your control. Um, but I, I find brands and cultures self-selected. And if I think 
about my agency, we get a certain type of person who knocks on our door who wants to work with us, who is kind of built in the same way. We have a proposition around measured magic. Most of them kind of know what that means and they can apply it. And the same for our clients. It's quite self-selective in that way as well. And so I think if you feel if you feel like you're in an organisation that doesn't quite get you, that's not going to change. Get out. It's good advice. I, I thought you might have some sort of magic formula, but that's exactly the sort of advice I would give to people as well. It's when people complain about their job, I'm like, it's not going to change. You may as well just move on and find somewhere where you're going to be happy. My sister always says you can change your attitude or you can change your job, and, and that's kind of it. But um, the only the only caveat to that I'd say is I do think there is something to be said for being gainfully uh, employed. And so I, I do think we get a lot of dissatisfaction thinking, oh, that organisation's been more innovative or they're having more fun or this is happening over there. And there is a lot of societal pressure on us to be living our best life in quotes and all that kind of shit. And sometimes, so so sometimes just be grateful for what you have, but if it is unbearable, then and if you are more creative in the organisation, then then go find an organisation that's that's more at your speed. I agree a hundred percent. Adam, there's a saying that no idea is a bad idea. I'm not sure I completely agree with that, but it means, or, or it's talking about, let's get the ideas out there and discuss them, and then let's have a conversation about what can and can't work. It is easier said than done, especially when a lot of people's initial default position is one of why we can't do something, so just maintaining the status quo. I've worked at a place once where there was a new idea thrown up. Whenever we had meetings and and somebody had a new idea, we had an egg timer, and you were only allowed to provide positive feedback and build on that idea for the time that the egg timer was running. So no negative comments or trying to shut the idea down were allowed. And it was really interesting because it gave ideas time to breathe a little bit before we looked at them critically. And then afterwards, people could look at it more critically. And I suppose it was all around, like I said, giving it air, giving it a bit of a chance to grow. What is some advice you can give to people who think that they have some good ideas to share and explore, but they're they're worried about putting them out there. Is there a, a special way to initially position and and socialise a new idea in a in a business situation to to really give it its best chance? It's a beautiful question. I think the first thing I think is incumbent on the organisation that you're working on to create a sense of psychological safety for people to feel comfortable sharing ideas, and I think that's really valuable, really important. The egg timer thing, I get it. It feels a bit contrived for me, but I like the thinking behind that. We do believe there are bad ideas and bad ideas happen a lot. And we do believe in killing them quickly. And we believe in setting a setting a benchmark for what a good idea is and for people to be internalising that, for understanding that. So we don't like to celebrate shitty ideas or stuff that's just day-to-day work. We don't want people to be confused with what a good idea is versus um, crap. And but but it's important to create that sense of psychological safety first, so then we can have a conversation and say and divorce the person from the idea and say, yeah, that idea is shit. You're a sort of wonderful human being, but that's not exactly um, what we're after. Um, I did want to say one other thing on that as well. In terms of um, yeah, that's right. In terms of that, if I think think about now the individual and how to give that individual confidence to create ideas. There's a wonderful um, book by a guy called Paul Arden who's, who's is called It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want to Be. It's a weird title, but 
he talks about giving away ideas. Or if you do have an idea and you're in an office environment, put the idea on the end of your desk and let other people walk past it because everybody loves to have an opinion. And so if you put the idea at the end of your desk, people will give you their, oh, what's this? Oh, 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 wow. I think this is, I think X, Y, and Z. And they'll give you your opinion, their opinion, and you'll be able to take what you want from those opinions and and reject what you want from those opinions. So I guess don't be afraid to socialise ideas and just listen to what people say um, and uh, and then try to balance that with your own internal sense of judgment and that's that's yeah and that's hard i don't quite know what to say about how to develop a better judgment for what a good idea or a bad idea is uh, i think that comes with experience but i certainly would hope there's a faster way to to get good judgment than just you know being in the game a long time that sounds terribly boring well but i actually love your answer around that because i had framed the question about what the individual needs to do and focus on to be able to maybe give their idea enough traction at the start before anybody kills it but you flipped it right around and and quite rightly now that i think about it made it more about the organization's responsibility that people feel safe and encouraged to share ideas that they're not going to be shot down or made to feel stupid because then people just become more insular and then you're going to have less ideas shared so uh, i do i like how you flip that around adam what place does innovation and creativity have when we don't have any ideas at a certain point in time how do we come up with stuff when we're placed on the spot maybe we have a new sponsor a new opportunity okay everybody hit me with your ideas how are we going to make this sponsorship work what activations are we going to have and everyone sits there going oh i don't really have much to offer boss how do we get over that hump so most ideas are developed by people receiving a brief, leaving that situation, creating some kind of connections in the mind, and then coming back to the problem. And so you can, if you, you can fast track that process by hearing the brief, put yourself in a position or involve yourself with some form of stimulus that's likely to create interesting connections in your head and then, and then you know, whenever you're ready or, or don't even think about it, the brain will do the work for you and connect the dots for you when, when you're not expecting it. So if the brand you're working on is really, really rough and they want a solution to make the brand really, really smooth, just surround yourself in the world of smooth in some way or read up on smooth or play around with smooth. Don't try to solve a problem. Just try to think about the world of smooth. And then later, just by the brain works, the connection will get made. You go, oh, shit, hang on, it could be whatever. So that's, that's how I'll that's how I'll describe it to someone. Get yourself away from the problem, but where you put yourself matters because that's where the brain is going to start to form its little connections in new and novel ways. And and I think is it fair to say that's what happened when people say oh I had this great idea in the shower or at the supermarket or when I was on the toilet or at the gym or whatever. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it's hideous of me to do this, but to cross-reference my podcast on um, creativity, which is called Black T-shirts, we interview creative people all the time, and we ask them what's their process. And it's always I get away from a problem, I go for a walk, I go and go to a dinner party. I you know, I think. You get I I do something else, and I think that's part of it. And then the problem will come to you. But I think it's really, really important 
to make sure you put stimulus into your head that's associated with the problem, uh, not directly trying to solve it. But you know what I mean? Putting itself into the brain world in some way and then letting the brain just weave, do its magic. Yeah, I love that answer. It's, it's, uh, I can definitely see that working. Let's say a rights holder is speaking to a potential sponsor. So a football club, a basketball club is speaking to a potential sponsor and they want to promote the fact that they are innovative and progressive and creative. How do they best do that without making it sound like just marketing smoke and mirrors and just fluff and just something that everybody else says all the time? I think it's it's very important if you sponsor an entity, get the basics right, get everything down packed, make sure your brand proposition is reflective in all your in all the sponsorship material, and don't try to um, hit it out of a park on year one. Year one should just be about brand X is now associated with brand with sponsorship entity Y. And that makes sense to people. That that partnership makes sense because the brand proposition is, is reflected in that. Once that's established, year two, then I think is or year two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, is the opportunity to then start to leverage that and do crazy, cool, interesting things because the brand proposition has been established. The partnership makes sense in people's minds. And so therefore that's the foundation to then start doing interesting things from. Circling back around a, a little bit, and and you spoke there about year one and then the years following on, because great ideas aren't bound to a calendar, a time frame, or when people say, give us your best ideas around this problem. As you rightly pointed out before, they can come at any time as long as we set ourselves up for success. However, as we discussed in the last episode when we were talking with Dan from Mediacom about being responsive, Many a good idea has been killed with the line in an organisation or a meeting that says, great idea, let's let's look at that next year. How do organisations give those ideas some air, a chance, again, without killing it with the, with, with the next year line and, and hoping people just come back and remember to raise that cool idea again? I'll pre- repeat the answer from the first question previously, which is, Make sure the platform's established, right? So the brand platform, the partnership platform, whatever. So there is a case to be said of that idea is cool and interesting, but the foundations haven't been established yet, so therefore I'm not interested. Okay, park that. Imagine the platform's established and now you're having that conversation. One of the things I like to say to people, and I used to be a forensic psychologist, I used to be a psychologists working in a forensic setting in the prison systems and so forth. And there's always, there's this kind of half-life of solving a murder that most murders are solved in the first 48 hours. And then after that, your chances get uh, very, very exponentially less and less and less and less and less as time goes on. I think an idea is, is a bit like that. Either they happen quickly or they tend to not happen at all. And I, I like to scare um, I like to scare people into the idea of it not happening. So if it's a good idea, they tend to get their own momentum and people want to see it happen out in the world. And then if they don't if they don't share the same enthusiasm for that idea happening, coming out in the world, um, then it may not be a good idea. You know what I mean? It might, it might be a crap idea. And so then 
it's more around scaring them that the idea won't happen because if it's good, they'll have your same enthusiasm. Planning in sponsorship is clearly important, but we also need to be flexible so that we have the ability to take advantage of opportunities as they arise, whether they're for economic reasons or maybe cultural changes and riding the wave of of particular popular things in culture at any point in time. What are your thoughts on having flexible budgets versus the certainty of a plan that everybody signs off on and knows what's happening? I think I'd just take a step back. It's entirely dependent on the culture of the organisation as to how that culture should react or how that culture acts. And I think understanding your whole communications actions framework is really important. So are you the type of business that builds yourselves on stunts all the time? Are you the type of business that likes to have slow incremental growth and and be very predictable? Are you the type of business who likes to attach themselves to moments in culture and time and be sporadic and so forth? And I think the answer to those things are quite cultural normally. And so, therefore, I would, I would go back to the macro comms framework of how that brand feels comfortable building itself and, and take my guidance from there. Because, again, you can't, it's hard to buck that kind of stuff. But um, some are slow, deliberate, steady, all pre-organised. Others are more chaotic, opportunistic, path twitch, uh, go of a flow. Um, but I would, I, would, I, would make, so I, would, I would make that decision early as to how you're going to be, and then I'll I'll ride with that. I love that answer because that's more of a self-reflection and setting the direction. This is the type of organisation we are. We know that. We're self-aware, so to speak, and so we're not just going to jump at opportunities or we are the type of organisation that will jump at opportunities because I think sometimes if you don't have those conversations – somebody in another section or part of another team can come with a cool idea and everybody kind of feels this pressure to be able to be engaged with it and potentially make it happen where you can always then have those conversations against the backdrop of what the culture and and the way forward for your organization is. So I love that answer. Now, this next question touches on something that always irks me in sport at least, and that is media fragmentation. For sport, that is the fact that nowadays it's played out on so many different platforms, all of which often need a subscription to be able to watch the sport people love. In fact, my son really wants to watch a football documentary, but it's not on Foxtel, Disney+, Plus, Stan, or Netflix, all of which we have accounts with. Instead, it's on Amazon Prime, and so he's really frustrated that he doesn't get to watch this sports documentary. And personally, I get the need to drive revenue but it, i think it's also a wasted opportunity to engage with a market because my son now is not going to engage with that content however fragmentation does create opportunities in a weird way if people can pay attention to culture and cultural relevance is it, it's very important in sponsorship mr beast is a great example of a cultural phenomenon that essentially hides in plain sight. Tell us about Mr. Beast because I think it's a great example of not thinking the same old ways. So I agree with you on fragmentation, obviously. Uh, and I think the answer to um so the the, the answer to, to the answer to fragmentation is to not think in all the channels that are available in your market, whatever it is that you're trying to do. 
and trying to create something that works across all of those different channels and plays a game. So Mr. Beast is a um, is a young content creator. Uh, he's probably in his mid to late twenties now. Uh, um, he he became famous. He did a YouTube video. His very first YouTube video was him complaining, talking about how much he hated this person who killed him at the highest level within playing a game, Call of Duty. And it was just him rambling on about how much he didn't like this guy, killed him in the game. But anyway, it was, um, but then, and then from there he started to develop more and more content, which all around was around him giving money away in really creative, interesting ways. Um, and then he started to amass the um, the hits, um, became a YouTube, whatever you know, key creator or whatever they call him, started getting paid and so forth. And but he, it, was, it was interesting because he got paid money for creating content around giving money away, which I found kind of interesting. But he's now taken his own concept of Mr. Beast. He owns his own media channel. He's his own brand, his own entity. He's created different things like Beastbergs and so forth. But he's now using other people like Elon Musk and so on to create more brand awareness for himself by attaching himself to a whole lot of different cultural bumps, wherever they might be. And he's now making very high-end, very expensive content. Um, but he is the brand and he is the entity. So. It's um, so I, I think I think the only I think the answer to media fragmentation is to create for yourself an entity that is the media in its own right. Ryan Reynolds, um, with his agency Maximum Effort, talks a lot about brands being IP, and you know you are the IP in and of yourself, and that is what you are leveraging, no matter where people are interacting with that. So if you are in a fortunate enough position to be able to think across the media landscape and create your own entity that can get disseminated no matter what the media channel is, then um, you know, then then all power to you. But I think it's interesting in the world of sponsorship, right? Because if you've got the sponsorship entity and the brand that wants to sponsor it, then which one is both of those could be the media entity in their own right, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's interesting. Yes, I agree. You, you, you can be a little bit of a, for want of a better phrase, a headbutting exercise around the content of creation and and who distributes it and owns it and use of IP because it's two strong uh, intellectual properties coming together. I like to think of marketing communications landscape as looking at owned assets. First. So what can I do with all the assets I have? So if I'm Mr. Beast, I look at my owned assets, my own media channels first. Then look at shared media channels, so shared assets. So what brands can I partner with where there's just a mutual value exchange, so no money has to cross hands. But we both get something out of, of creating some kind of value exchange. So now Mr. Beast and Elon Musk both have very, very different audiences, but they're constantly kind of interacting and playing with each other in Twitter to try to drive awareness of each other's different business needs. And then and then once you've got owned assets, you look at your owned assets, then look at shared assets, then Look at earn media, and then finally buy media if you need to. One of my favourite sayings. I feel like this question set is all around sayings, but one of my favourite sayings is: "If you are keeping everyone happy, then you're not trying hard enough." However, in today's environment, it's pretty easy to unintentionally offend people, whether 
that offence is justified or not. And I saw an article the other day where Shaquille O'Neal has found himself in the hot seat, so to speak, over gambling ads. Essentially, a probe has started because a viewer labelled the ads that he's in as being offensive against Aussies. So the complaint from the viewer was that the material discriminated and vilified while painting Aussies as stupid yobbos. And for our uh, international listeners, of which there's a lot, I I don't know if they know what a yobbo is, but it might be um, a culturally regressive, low socioeconomic character, I suppose. But um, in, in saying that, they were saying, oh, I'm not like that. I'm an Aussie too. I don't identify as a Yobbo lout like these characters are portrayed. It's offensive to me as an Australian to see my culture put down like this. But Shaq appears alongside Aussie comedy group that's called the Inspired Unemployed in the ads. And so clearly they are humour. And so my long setup to the question, which is, how much of a danger is political correctness to creative ideas and killing them? Well, you know, if I said to you, fuck shit, poo, wee, fuck, 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 I might be offending some of your audience, but I might also be getting uh, you know, more attention or being more deliberate just by, just by outraging a, a few people. If I then put meaning behind that in a world where people are getting outraged by various things, so... Um, Nike sponsoring Colin Kaepernick, for example, and various people being outraged by that sponsorship. The cancel culture and political correctness kind of can also create an opportunity for a brand to become even stronger by standing for stuff in this kind of council culture kind of world. So I actually see it. I, I see the suppression of freedom of thought, which is what your question's alluding to, is almost a greater opportunity for brands and businesses to stand for something powerful because they're fighting against the suppression that everybody's feeling through social media or being the next person to be called out. Um, So it asks for brands and businesses, I think, to be braver um, and to really understand the values behind that business, what that business stands for, and, and ask them, to, you know, ask them to, to make a stand. But I do think there's a beautiful saying in Batman, Batman once turned to Robin and said, remember, Robin, the brighter the picture of a dark of a negative. And so he can't squash, he can't squash society down. Like, it, it, council culture doesn't work. It, you know, people will find a way, find a voice to, to have. And so that's the opportunity is there to stand for something. And the more that there's council culture around, then the more you're, if you want to be a lighthouse in that world, then the more you'll be able to get your message out there. Some people might be thinking that testing an innovative or creative idea with a focus group is a sound approach. The logic being that ideas are best judged by those who will experience them. And it's also a way to manage risk a little bit. What are your views on focus groups? I'm sure you've used them a lot over the years in the industry that you work in, do you find them helpful or not? No, I, I particularly hate focus groups and I'm not that big on consumer consumer insight if I'm uh, if I'm honest and and um and that's only coming from a from a world that is completely obsessed with the customer what the customer thinks. And I do think uh, brands need a brand vision. They need to really clearly understand what their brand stands for. 
above and beyond anything else. Somebody once said to me, the only thing that focus groups are good for is for designing focus group rooms. So you can ask a whole bunch of people in a focus group, what do you think of the lighting? What do you think of the food? What do you think of these seats? And you get pretty good kind of feedback. But if you ask them, you know, do you think this ad is going to make you buy more of brand X? Or, you know, tell me about the reasons why you ban, why you buy brand Y. What consumers are giving you is absolute dribble. We are terrible at just our own behaviour. We're just as bad as being historians and just and kind of giving rationalisation to our own behaviour. We don't really we don't really like to articulate, or we're not good at articulating how we work and and what truly motivates us. So I kind of strongly advocate to have a really, really clear brand vision. Um, if you do need insights, get those insights early in the in the piece. Do a really good customer segmentation of the market, how the whole market operates, and and um, what are the drivers of the markets and the category entry points and so forth. But then, once you understand the market, then you you know then it's up to you to define your brand or define your entity or or define the partnership that's going to define you and and back with the insights that you already have don't go and test it with consumers data can almost be in the same boat sports like most industries have come about to to collect and use so much data but often it's still focused on the demographic elements of the data age sex where they live how much they earn those sorts of things it doesn't really tell us a lot about the audience however rights holders often want to use the data in their sponsorship pitches to brands. So a sports team will collect all of this data. They want to use it in their pitches to brands for sponsorships. But you don't need data to be successful. And in fact, it can actually be a hindrance. And you've had some experience on that front with your work on Vegemite's Tastes Like Australia campaign because it wasn't created using Consumer Insights. If it wasn't created using Consumer Insights, what did you lean on to develop the idea? And just before you kick off, you might need to explain to our international listeners what Vegemite is. So Vegemite is a yeast-based bread made from alcohol byproduct, which tastes as good as it as good as it sounds, but it's consumed. But it's the national dish and is consumed and loved by all Australians. When we and so when we won the when we won the pitch to become their agency, it was the first time in 57 years that Vegemite had changed agencies. And um, and and Vegemite got bought by a company called Bega, so it was back in Australian hands. It got bought out by, it was previously owned by Kraft. And we realised that Vegemite was a cultural construction. So there's no way a focus group could ever design a, a, a thing like Vegemite to sell. It was just being built over time and, and weirdness. Um, and so we took that we took that philosophy to to the, the brand platform we created for Vegemite was, was Tastes Like Australia, and you know, and then we had a whole lot of different types of communications to to prove it. I'm really into I'm a, a I'm a psychologist. I love marketing sciences and um, and so on. And um, and I really want to do the right thing by the clients I work for because if I do, I get repeat business. And so I've had a, had a look at advertising pre-testing and, and, and there's nothing, there's no form of advertising pre-testing that has been proven to work in an independent way. So the only people who prove that pre-testing works are the people who sell pre-testing methodologies. And the one thing that has been proven to work 
is structured interviews with um, brand experts. So if you've got a whole lot of brand experts and gave them a structured interview and said, you know, here's the objectives we're trying to meet. Do you think we're meeting these objectives of this sponsorship or this ad or this thing? And, and take them through a structured kind of question. And they'll be able to give you pretty good information. And so we didn't do any pre-testing on the work we did with Vegemite, but we did end up using a panel of eminent uh, marketing scientists and brand experts and got them to evaluate various aspects of the communication strategy that we had and the and the advertising. And we and we did a we did, did a structured interview with them and we used their insights to help us um, tweak the the communications. And so I think doing something like that is really interesting. Your point about uh, sports teams and rights holders using data to prove the most crazy, weird thing is so funny, isn't it? Like just seeing them go, oh, we have the most X fan or in the north when the weather's blowing, blah, 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 we are number one. And it's like all this kind of shit to prove the various piece of a sporting pie it does become uh, quite absurd. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what problem it's trying to solve. I wanted to follow up a little bit on, I love that use of structured interviews and almost as a replacement for pre-testing. You mentioned before that consumer insights, if you're going to use them, use them early, get them involved early on in, in the process. But if we can have success without using all the data and the insights, is there a role for data and insights? What can they actually do for us? I get uncomfortable combining data and insights into the question. I am interested in people like Steve Jobs and uh, Sir Richard Branson who have a very, very clear vision of their brand, the gap in the market, what customers want, and then orientating, then having the personality to be orientating large businesses to be able to deliver on that. But I think the, I think the role that research plays in that is minimal, but the role of insight plays in that is probably pretty high, but it's pretty instinctual from very charismatic and confident individuals holding that, those, those insights, if you know what I mean. So, so I think um, insights and research and data can all play a role in building the brand, in building any kind of brand or business. But I just think it's so often at the moment, it almost feels like it's at the expense of understanding what the brand stands for. So the the expression, I don't know if it's a global expression, but having a data lake is the latest thing in you know, in Australia at least. And I just think people I've seen too many people drown in in their data lakes and lose sight of what their brand stands for and where their brand is heading and that's what we think which people should be focusing on adam if we know that innovation is important and it clearly has economic benefits particularly in sponsorship why doesn't innovation happen more often why do we see the same sort of stuff being rolled out over and over again and it not appearing innovative Maybe because it's hard it would be the first thing i'd say never underestimate the powers of tradition like um it, it is, you know, it is easier just to kind of do the same thing as everybody else. I do think maybe in some instances being innovative is seen as being cooler or more interesting, whereas actual good businesses do grow in quite a consistent kind of 
fashion. So I think, you know, not everyone has to be the most innovative kid on the block. So it's kind of hard. Like, I don't quite know what you're comparing it to. You know, I look around the world and, you know, you know like if I pick this up on my desk at the moment, there's a, um, there's a, a Lego Adidas shoe, the shell top shoe, and it's really cool, right? And somebody had the idea for Lego and Adidas to do a JB and then make this crazy shoe. You know, that that's, you know, like, so, that, so I'm not sure I agree with the premise of your question. I think we're pretty innovative and lots of cool shit seems to be happening everywhere. If that's the case, but we still do know that innovation can be hard, as you said at the start, but there is lots of it happening. And so maybe it's about bringing it to market, bringing it to fruition. How do we ultimately know whether we should go ahead with an idea or not? If we're not going to rely heavily on insights and or data, but maybe an organization doesn't really have the ability to go after structured interviews. I know I'm painting you into a little bit of a corner here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think, the answer, I'll come back, so I do have an answer, which I'm happy with, even though I'm now it's around 14 I'm on the canvas. It's really good understand, really good understanding of where the brand is and where the brand needs to go to. And that's, and that's an, agreed, an agreed, simplified understanding of what your brand stands for and where, you, where you're trying to move your brand to. And I think it's... There are two really important skill sets in that, right? Isn't there? Number one, it's really defining the brand and making sure you're really, really clear about it. And two, making sure everybody else is on that journey. And and I would I would throw lots of my resources into that, um, and then then use that as the guide. Is that a good idea or not? Is that helping my brand on that on that journey or not? Um, I should be able to decide that because I'm really, really clear about what my brand stands for and where it's heading. I often say to some of my clients that if you want to be just doing marketing stuff, just just tactics, they, sometimes they feel a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. They're walking down the path, they get to the fork in the road, the Cheshire cat's in the tree. Alice says to the cat, which way should I go? And the cat says, well, where are you going? And Alice says, I don't know. And the cat says, well, any road will take you there. And so that's about knowing what you stand for, knowing where you're going, knowing what you want to achieve. And then you can have conversations about any innovative idea against the backdrop of that. So I I 100% agree with you. Now, it might be a little bit hard to put a bow tie uh, around this, so to speak, but is innovation easier than we think? Because a lot of people, I believe, think that innovation is hard. And as you said, sometimes it's just easier to keep doing what we're doing and sometimes that makes sense. But is there a perception that innovation is hard and that, to be fair, it really is easier than we think? I can remember being in an agency once and the whole agency every, I don't know, if I can't remember if it was every week or every month, but we used to have to clap all the stuff we had done that, that week or that month. And you know, these turgid ads that the whole agency was clapping for, and the whole thing was embarrassing and made me cringe. And so I do think there's a lot of celebrating mediocrity and not being honest with ourselves about whether something's good or not, so or great or not, or whatever you want, to, whatever your aspirations are. So I don't know if innovation is hard or not, but I think being honest with yourself about what you're contributing to the world and what your brand stands for, putting all of those kind of things in place first, and 
I think that might be hard. And then if you get all that in place, uh, then the other thing is being hard and being hard on yourself to know if that is achieving that or not, and and being being honest with yourself maybe, um, because uh, yeah, because I do I do think it's difficult to rise above the pack and set your own standards in business is hard, and it's even, and it's also difficult then to take other people on that journey as well and and make that a cultural thing. Adam, it's been a fantastic chat and. You offer more great insights and advice and stories in your own podcast. You mentioned it very briefly earlier, but I was always going to give you the opportunity to plug it because I think that that's only fair. I listen to it a little bit from time to time. It's called Black T-Shirts. Tell us what it is all about and why people should give it a listen. Thank you, mate. That's very generous of you. Black T-Shirts, double XL creativity for marketers. And it's just about for people in business who want to understand their creative process and get a few tips in terms of how to be more creative yourself and how to set a creative culture within the organisations that you're operating in, um, which is which is um, a fun thing. And so I think if, if people have found this conversation interesting, there's more of that sort of material and advice and, as you said, tidbits on black T-shirts. And, of course, listeners will put a link in the show notes. Adam, if people want to connect with you, keep the conversation going, find out more about your work, apart from the podcast, what can they do? Where can they go? Thank you again. Uh, so at Adam Ferrier on Twitter, Adam Ferrier on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on both. I've also got a couple of books out. Stop listening to the customer, try hearing your brand is dead and the advertising effect, dot, dot, how to change behavior. The agency, uh, which I've co-founded, is called Thinkabell and our propositions measured magic. But that's all the self-promotion that I can handle at the moment (laughs) thank you for the opportunity very good well adam ferrier founder and consumer psychologist at thinkabell thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your views and your insights and your experiences around innovation and creativity good on you mate thank you hosting a podcast and talking to sponsorship professionals is a fantastic part of my job i get to speak to so many smart and passionate people. But every now and again, just like today, I get to speak to somebody on the periphery somewhat of sponsorship. And I must say, it always gives me a renewed enthusiasm for sponsorship, a freshness. And I hope the chat with Adam has done that for you as well. If you only take one thing away from Adam today, I think it should be the approach to idea generation where you immerse yourself in a topic, learn lots about it, live it, breathe it, engage with it, feel it, etc., and then let the ideas come. It's a great approach. If you'd like to connect with Adam on LinkedIn, simply search for Adam Ferrier. That's F-E-R-R-I-E-R. And of course, you can find out more about Thinkabell at thinkabell.com and follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Ferrier. I highly recommend checking out his Black T-Shirts podcast. I'm a listener myself. And his books, firstly, Stop Listening to the Consumer, Try Hearing Your Brand Instead. And secondly, The Advertising Effect, How to Change Behavior. Of course, all of those links to those resources are in the show notes at coresoftware.com. Finally, if you'd like a shout out or just want to connect with me and say hi, I would totally love to hear from you. I get a real kick out of it, so please do. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. That's a wrap for episode 115. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. 
Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.